Good morning. Did that look like fun to you guys? Yeah, it looked like fun to me too. So let me pray. Lord, I want to thank you for the time that I get to be up here this morning and speak to your family, Lord, to my family, Lord. I ask that you make my words your words and your words my words so that whatever it is I say, Lord, is what you want them to hear. Lord, we sang about blessed assurance this morning. We sang about firm foundations. We sang about building a life, Lord. And so I ask that from the words that you give them this morning, Lord, that they remember some of the foundational teachings that you've given from the Bible from the very beginning, Lord, so that they can institute these in their lives and they can become better followers of you, Lord, and better examples of you in the world. Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so how do I sound? Do I sound okay? Okay. Okay. I sound like Mike. Thank you, I think. So for the past few weeks, I've been working nine to ten hour days. Uh, in fact, uh, two weeks ago, I worked nearly an 11 hour day, and this week, I worked a day that was probably, probably in excess of 13 hours. I haven't really gone and done the math for that yet, but my brain is too foggy about that day. But when I get down to, to a chance to sit down and look at that day, it probably was more than 13 hours. Uh, so there's a goal that my company has for me, and so because of that goal, there's a, time, a timeline set to it. There's a deadline that is set to it. So I, I'm having to work a lot more hours over the past few weeks to hit that goal. 10-hour days, 13-hour days, 11-hour days, just seems like all of the time. Now, I'm not telling you that to lift myself up or to glorify myself to you in any way. I won't do that for at least two reasons. One, there are some of you in here who work those kinds of hours regularly, and there are some of you that work those hours not only regularly, but you work harder than I do in the job that I have. So I'm not going to compare myself to you or anything. I'm just giving you that information that I've been working a lot of hours lately to explain another truth that I'm going to get to you this morning. Another reason that I'm not going to lift myself up or glorify myself in that way is because my nature is not to work hard. Um, I don't know about some of you guys. Randy, I hear you're a really hard worker. Damon, I know, is a really hard worker. Sean, you're a really hard worker. I am more like that guy on Dobie Gillis. Anybody here old enough to remember Dobie Gillis? So what was the guy's name on Dobie Gillis? He was played by Gilligan. I think it was like, what was it? Maynard. Yes, Maynard. Maynard Krebs, right? Maynard G. Krebs. That's me. I prefer to just play, sit around, think. I'm, I mean, if, if, if there wasn't a conservative streak in me, I would probably be a beatnik. Um, my wife has told me that I would be happy living in a tent with shorts and sandals and a bunch of books, and I'd probably be okay. So I don't like going to work 40 hours a week, so I'm not lifting myself up with those long hours. I just want to tell you that because I want you to understand that we live in a society where there is a very strong ethos of work, and so that sort of forces us into these patterns of being productive. And that's not necessarily a bad thing either because guess what? Not only do we have this American ethos to where we work and there's this morality and this moral push behind it, but there's also this really big reality behind it as well because if I don't work, I don't eat, right? So I have to put in 40, 50, 60 hours a week if I want to have food, if I want to have nice things, even if I want to have a little bit of time at the end of the week, I have to put in 40 hours in order to be able to enjoy the time at the end of the week. It's just the way the world works. And it's not really a bad thing either because if you didn't have that work during the week, one of the first things that would happen to you is that you would become just like Maynard and you would be lazy and your days would begin to disorganize and things would get discombobulated. It's bad to work too much. It's bad to work too little. That's just a pattern of the world. 
So I've been working these 40, 50, 60 hour weeks for a few weeks now because I've got this goal that I've got to reach. And my wife has also been working a lot of hours in the past few weeks. There are some things that are changing at her job to where she's having to work more. The amount of work that they have due, the amount of patients that have come in is increased. And so she's getting home at 7 o'clock. And she works a lot harder than I do, at least I think she does, because she has a very mentally tasking job. So when I get home, I mean, look, if I mess up during the day on my job, it's not not really a, a big deal. Somebody's, you know, panties get in the wad or whatever, and then I have to work the next couple of weeks getting them out of a wad. But if Kelly messes up in a day, somebody could die. So there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of stress behind that. So we're both getting home at 7 o'clock in the evening lately. And so by the time you get home at 7 o'clock in the evening, you got to make supper, right? you got to eat supper. you got to clean up the dishes, which we really don't do. We put those aside, and we do them the next day or maybe the day after that. And, uh, and so whenever it stacks up too much that we can't take it anymore, and then somebody's got to clean the dishes. So we've been passing in the night. And so this week, we had one of those weeks where we were both getting in very late every night, and we hadn't seen each other. But Friday... We had set aside time that we had forgotten about to go to a concert in Gainesville to see Casting Crowns. And we had some extra tickets because we've been working so hard we forgot why we had extra tickets. And so we invited Wendy and David, and they went with us, and we had a good time. It was a good concert, but we were both so tired. We were sitting there, we ate dinner before the concert, we went over to some little burger joint in Gainesville, and we're just looking at each other and we're both tired, especially you. And I'm like, man, we finished the concert, we enjoyed it, and as we got through the concert, I realized I have not had an intimate conversation with my wife all week. I haven't had any intimate time with my wife, we've not done anything in more than a week because we've been passing like ships in the night. And that's a bad thing, because just like being lazy can get things discombobulated, working too much gets things discombobulated. Because what happens when you work too much, and you're not keeping track of that stuff, is that you begin to rest when you should be working, and you're working when you should be resting. And everything gets out of order. And that is the opposite of what God has designed for people on earth to experience. Um, it happens, I mean, weird things can happen. I notice it with my clients, for instance. My clients will get in a place where they don't prioritize their weeks and their days right, and a lot of my clients are on mental health medications. And so because they're not prioritizing their days, they will forget that they're supposed to take their medication at 9 in the morning or 9 at the night or at lunchtime or whatever, and then pretty soon they're not taking it all, and in three weeks they're in the crisis unit because they've been without medications. Well, your life is just like that. Everything about it is just like that, but that is completely different from the pattern that you're supposed to live. We were talking about foundations in our songs this morning, in a couple of different songs we mentioned foundations, and God has set for us a foundational pattern, and you can get it in Genesis 1 all the way through Genesis 2, verse 3, and I'm going to read that to you, and then we're going to explain it just a little bit. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God said that the light was good. 
And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit, which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God said, let them in the expanse of the heavens to give light to the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that, keeps, uh, that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I want to stop there just for a second. <clears throat> God created man and woman in the image of God. That is not so much that we look like God, although we do. We know that God in human form is Jesus Christ, so we bear physical resemblance to God in that way. But that image bearing there is not so much a physical thing as it is a spiritual thing, Sean. You'll notice that when we are bearing His image, we have dominion over all of the things on earth. It is man that is at the hierarchy of all living creatures on earth, just like God is at the hierarchy of all spiritual things in the universe. So we are to be an image bearer of God. We are to represent Him in the way that we walk on the earth. We don't do it very well, obviously, but that is the intent. So so He makes us in His image, 
And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. You can put up chapter 2 if you want, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all of the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from his work that he had done in its creation. So God takes the seventh day and he makes it holy. But before he does that, he has six prioritized days that are focused solely on the expenditure of his creative power. That for six days God is building, he has a task, he has a focus, he has a mission, he has a point. And that point is to create a creation that is dominioned by man. So he creates everything in that world so that man has those things to have dominion over, but also those things that he can use in his life as he walks in the creation that God created for him. It's totally prioritized. Everything is focused for the creation of that hierarchy over six days. Then on the seventh day, God rests to give us an example you have created, he's, you are to do the exact same thing because you are an image bearer of God. You are to be an image bearer of everything, for everything that lives on this earth. You have dominion over all of it. So your week should be one that is prioritized in such a way that your, your creative forces and your creative juices are focused for one thing. And that one thing is to represent God in everything that you do so that his creation can advance through the work that you're doing. Much of that work is mundane. It's getting up in the morning and making your bed, making breakfast for your children, going to your work and doing the best thing that you can at that job so that your boss sees that there's something different about you and maybe at some point changes his life because of what he has seen in you. So that at the end of your week, you can look back at your week and you can say, it was very good. And then on the seventh day, you can rest. That is a pattern that God has expected and established in the way that men are supposed to behave in the world. It's a pattern, but yet we break that pattern. By the way, God set it aside and made it holy. That doesn't mean that he made it religious. It doesn't mean that he made it spiritual. That word holy in that Hebraic context simply means this. He set it apart. He dedicated it. It is dedicated for rest. That's its purpose. That's the purpose of the Sabbath. In fact, that's where we get the word Sabbath in Hebrew comes from the word to stop, cease, to rest. 
This pattern is a foundational pattern. You know what foundational means, right? What does somebody give me a give me an idea? What does foundational mean? A solid base, right? So if you build, to use um, another metaphor from the Bible, if you build a house on sand, what happens? It falls apart, right? If you build a marriage on lust, it's going to fall apart because that's not what marriage are to be based on, right? If you are pursuing a career solely for the purpose of gaining money and nothing else, then your career is going to be a heap of smelly poop, okay? You're going to hate that, okay? It's not going to be good for you because it's built on the wrong foundation. So this pattern that God establishes in Genesis 1 is a foundational pattern, and it is so important to what God is building for mankind that it is actually encoded in the core of the law. Now you'll remember, if you guys have had any kind of churching or, or church schooling before, you know that there's sort of two there's sort of two kinds of law. There's the ceremonial law, and then there's this kernel, core of the law, that we find in the Ten Commandments. All of that ceremonial law that all of the Hebrews and Israelites and, and, and the Jews practiced, those were all born out of the core of the law, the Ten Commandments. And in fact, Jesus even collapses the Ten Commandments into two, love the Lord your God with everything and love your neighbor like yourself. So at the kernel of this, at the kernel of the law that is supposed to govern and program our lives is the Ten Commandments. And encapsulated in the Ten Commandments is that very pattern in Genesis 1. I'm going to read the Ten Commandments to you. You'll find them in Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. And this is how they go. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment one, and we all do. This is not part of the sermon, but every time I come to this, I have to remind you of it, because you are, if you are like me, you forget this easily. Commandment number one, have no other gods before me, but yet we do. Anything that you are willing to sacrifice for at the expense of time with God is your God in that moment which very often happens to be the most trivial of gods. Whether it's your television or your radio or your cupcake or whatever it is, it's far less than what God is. In fact, if you were to sit and think about the things that you sacrifice for and you do it with a Christian mindset and some relative amount of thought, you will be horrified at the things that you have sacrificed for. You have put things before God that would just, what was I thinking? You weren't. You were feeling rather than thinking. And your God has become your belly. So, you shall have no other gods before me, commandment number one. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or to serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Commandment number two, you will not have idols in your life. No idols in your life. 
No graven images, no idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. I'm going to broaden this for you. And I want this to shock you. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. This is, this, you've heard somebody use Jesus Christ as a curse word, right? This applies to that. You've heard somebody say GD, right? This applies to that. Certainly does. I don't want you to lose sight of that. But let me tell you where this particular commandment has its greatest weight. Its greatest weight is not in the verbal expressions of the names of God. Its greatest weight is in your representation of that name. So if you say that I am a Christian, but you walk like a heathen, then you are taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. And he will not hold you guiltless. Or me. Because I've done it in the walk that I walk. This is why prayer life is so important. If there's anything that prayer changes, it is you if you're doing it right. I'm not saying do not expect God to change things in your environment when you pray for them. I'm not saying that. I don't believe that. I don't teach it. But the greater weight of prayer is the change of who you are and the focus of your mind on the mission that God has for you. So that's why prayer is important. If you're not praying regularly, daily, maybe even many times per day, then your mind moves to the things of the world and you begin to live like someone in the world and you begin to misrepresent the name of God because you're walking around with a Jesus sticker on your car and Christian on your forehead and you look nothing like it. That's preaching to me, by the way, as well. I'm not, not going to do that. All right. So that's number three. Number four, remember the Sabbath day, remember the rest day, and to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it holy. He set it apart for rest. Now we, we could have a really good discussion from this pulpit about how and when we're supposed to observe the Sabbath. It would be a good study. Maybe, maybe we should do it in a Sunday school class when I gear those back up again. Suffice it to say that the application of this particular commandment is a little bit different um, for New Testament Christians than it would have been for uh, Jewish followers of, of, uh, of the Lord in, in um, pre-New Testament times. But still, they're very, very close and they're very, very related. So number five, honor your mother and your father that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. 
You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or his anything that is your neighbor's, his car, his money, his house, none of it. Don't covet that. And yet you live in a society that is its entire economic base almost, or at least its entire, at least the the marketing domain of its economic base is all about getting you to covet what your neighbor has. And yet, the final commandment is you're not supposed to do that. Anyway, looking at these Ten Commandments, all of them, except for two, are you shall not. You won't, don't commit adultery, don't commit murder, don't have any other gods before me, don't have any idols, Except the Sabbath day. You are to honor the Sabbath day. It's an active command. It's something that you do, not something that you avoid. Honoring your mother and father, it is something that you do, not something that you avoid. It is a gear, it's a compass, it's a focus, it's a push for your life. It's one of the things that makes the teaching of Jesus really unique is is this active push thing that I'm talking about here. You guys are familiar with Jesus who says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? That's called the what? The golden rule. Every major religion has the golden rule. But the golden rule in Christianity is uniquely different than the ones in all the other religions. When you go and you look at every major religion and their version of the golden rule, it will always say something like this. It will say, don't do to others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. But Jesus flips that. It makes it into a greater truth. You are to do to others what you would have them do to you. You don't avoid things. Your life has a push to do those things. You feed someone who is hungry. You comfort someone who is upset. You sacrifice for someone who needs it. It's not an avoidance. Well, these two commandments are very much in that same kind of thing. You do this thing. You don't avoid doing it. So the Sabbath encoded into this kernel of the law is this command to honor the Sabbath, to have rest. And it even tells us a little bit about why. On it you shall do no work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates for in six days uh, the Lord God made heaven uh, and earth and sea and all that is in them and rested. Um, Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You do it because it's the example that God has set for you. There is a pattern. The pattern is I work six days to honor God, to advance his kingdom, to lift up his creation, to take care of the thing that he has put me here for, and then on the seventh day, I will rest. Every one of you is in your own, although it may be a hellacious one, you are in your own little Garden of Eden. You have been placed there for the purpose of caring for that. So six days, you push for that, and on the seventh, you rest. This idea of rest is central in lots of places in the Bible. I'm going to touch on one because it's just interesting, just to show you how serious God is about rest in regards of the things that are living that he has created. 
Leviticus 25, verses 1 through 7, the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits, but in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your, under, of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired worker and your sojourner who lives with you and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in the land. All its yield shall be for food. There's an expectation that even the earth rest at some point. It's a cyclical pattern. If you don't rest the land, what happens? Anybody here farmers? Anybody do any gardening of any kind? What happens if you garden in the same plot over and over and over and over again? You ain't going to get nothing. What happens? Do you know what happens? The nutrients in the soil are eaten up by the plants. They go away. They're washed away. They're not, it's, it, it becomes like desert soil, right? It doesn't produce anything. You're that soil. If you don't rest yourself in an established pattern that God has given you, by the way, I don't necessarily mean that your Sabbath has to be Sunday, although that is a good place to start because this is where your faith community meets on Sunday, but if we decided meeting to meet on Wednesday, it would be fine. Every, after every sixth day, on the seventh day, whenever it is that is, that's when you rest. It should be done. So just like the soil, you will lose all of the nutrients in your life. And it becomes too difficult for you to carry out the mission that, is God, that God has given you. To tend to your little Eden. Okay, to tend to the plot that he's given you because you have used up all of your resources. This holy day of the Sabbath, although it is holy and set aside, it is not a religious day. Now, we can come together and practice religion together as a faith community, and I wholeheartedly expect you guys to do that. But it's not a religious day. There's not a bunch of spiritual, symbolic mumbo-jumbo that makes the Sabbath different than any other day of the week. What makes the Sabbath different than any other day of the week is that it is set aside for rest. You'll notice in uh, Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, there's this wonderful story about Jesus healing on the Sabbath. Let me read that to you. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm or to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Punks. Chickens. And he looked around at them with anger. grieved at their hard-heartedness and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel 
with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. It was at this point that they began to plot against the Lord. Dude, you've now crossed the line. You're doing something on this holy day that you shouldn't be doing. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. He was angry with them because here were these Pharisees, and these were very learned men. They should have known that what Jesus was doing on the Sabbath was okay. But because they reaped some kind of benefit from the hierarchical structure that they had built, they were upset that Jesus was collapsing that hierarchy for them. James tells us in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, what real religion is. Now this is an encapsulation, and I'm going to explain it a little bit, but James says in chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's religion. Because if you want to know what religion really is, let me tell you what, religious, what religion really is. It is the application of what you believe. That's what it is. It's the application of what you believe. So when those Pharisees were deciding to kill Jesus, that was an application of what they believed. They had a hardened heart, and their investment was in the hierarchical structure, that hierarchical religious structure of that day. That's where their faith was. That's where they got all of their goodies. And that's why they hated Jesus, because he was collapsing that structure by reminding people of who they're really supposed to worship. Not the rabbi, not a system, but God himself. So, the Sabbath is not a religious observance. It is a recognition of the pattern that God has set for humanity and taking advantage of that pattern and using it. Mark 2, 23-28, we have a similar story. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you ever read, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So Jesus is really knocking them right there. He's saying, I'm God of this, not you. But just so you know, God did not make the Sabbath day. Um, God, uh, the Sabbath is made for men, not for God. It's for you. The purpose of the Sabbath is for people to rest. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God didn't make man to celebrate a Sabbath and a religious holiday on, on a Sunday. 
or in that day, a Saturday. He made the Sabbath so that men could rest. Now, the Sabbath is a day of worship, and you will have some people who will argue that Sunday is a special day that is set aside for worship. That is a horribly imbalanced idea. Why would I say something like that? Why, why would I say, Randy, I'm going to put you on the spot. Are you okay with that? Okay. Why would I say that it is an imbalanced idea to think of Sunday as a day that is set aside for the purpose of worship? Are you Randy? <laughs> That's what I do to my clients when they're in class. Are you Susie? The answer is correct. The answer, Charlie, a better way to put it is this, that you're supposed to worship every day. That should be your life. It is your life. Everything about you should be worship. Take a look at this, what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12 about this very idea. In his very famous beginning to the chapter of 12, of Romans 12, Paul says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We are, to be our, we are to make our bodies a living sacrifice. What that means is that whatever it is that you believe should bear itself out from your body in what you do. Every day, you are a living sacrifice. I'm going to give up my moment of time here, a little bit of my lunch, because I need to pray and I need to refocus my life on what it is that God wants me to do. That's a living sacrifice. There's a person that needs my help. They're not even a pleasant person, and I don't really even like them. But God has told me to help that person. You know what? I am going to go and grit my teeth and help that person through this difficulty because I am a living sacrifice. You were to follow... To follow Jesus means to do what he did. That means that at times you're going to have to step down from whatever part of the human hierarchy that you are in to a lower part of the human hierarchy and sacrifice for someone who doesn't even deserve it just so that you're an example. They may not even ever appreciate that sacrifice that you did. In fact, they may shun it they may shun God, they may die and go to hell, but you are supposed to do it because Jesus did it. There are lots of people that just reject and shun Jesus and ultimately they go to hell. But Jesus gave them the opportunity to avoid that. You're the same thing, a living sacrifice. You are to be like Jesus.
that six days a week, you were to follow that pattern of expending your creative energies, whatever God has talented you with. Some people have more, some people have less, but everybody has some. And to expend those talents in a way that advances the kingdom of God, that, that helps the creation that is you become more mature, more wise, and a better reflection of Jesus. And then on the seventh day, you rest, preferably with other people who love Jesus too. If you don't get that rest, you lose your energy. Now let me tell you what the ultimate rest is, and I'm going to end it with this. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus himself is your greatest rest. Jesus the person is your greatest rest. I want you to think about what he says here. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you a Christian? Are you following Christ? If you are, then you should be bearing a heavy burden. It's expected that you're a laborer of some sort. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. You know what a yoke is, right? What's a yoke? Not like an egg. Right? What is it? Right, okay. So there's an expectation that followers of Christ have a yoke. Marriage is a kind of yoke that I have yoked myself. She's smiling at me. I'm going to make you a sermon example because that's what preachers do. But God yoked me to my wife and her to me so that in a marriage that we would work together like two beasts of burden to produce during each seven-day week. We're to work together in the raising of children, into the bettering of our community, into being a reflection of Christ in all that we do. I'm yoked to her. We work together. Okay, Jesus says not to give up the yoke that you have with your wife, if you're yoked to your wife, but he says, come to me, you and your wife, and yoke yourself to me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That together, and you can look at this two ways. Maybe you're sharing the yoke with Jesus and you're both pulling the plow. Or maybe Jesus is the guide behind you and that's his yoke and he's directing you as you pull the plow. Either way, it works. The yoke of Jesus is light. It's easy. It's easier than chasing money. 
it's easier than letting busyness dictate the various corners of your life. Come to him and you'll find rest, for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I know that right now there are many people here whose yoke is not easy and their burden is not right or not light because your world has become discombobulated. You're resting when you should be working and you're working when you should be resting and you don't know what's going here or there or anywhere. If that's you, we haven't done this in a while, but I'm going to open the altars this morning and I'm going to pray for each of you that if you have been struggling with a burden that you need Jesus to help carry, the altars are now open for you. We'll take a few minutes of quiet time, and I don't know if Dale is still around. Has Dale darted? Okay. Do what? Okay, that's fine. I'll open the altars for a few minutes, and it can be quiet. And if you have anything that you want to lay at that altar and have God work with you on rest, please do it. Because I know that there are people, because you're just a normal community, and rest is something you need. Dear God in heaven, I thank you for these folks that are coming forward. I ask, Lord, that you give them rest. I ask that you give them what they need, Lord, to be able to share your yoke, Lord, so that they can work throughout the week to glorify you and to advance your kingdom, Lord. And I ask that you give them the discipline necessary, Lord, to avoid busyness and to take rest. Lord, help them to reestablish that pattern of Genesis 1 in their life. Lord, give them the ease and the light burden that they need. Lord, I give them now time to pray to you, Lord, and to ask for that. In Jesus' name, amen.